Good morning and welcome. We're here this morning to hear argument in the case of SD versus GD. It's a protective order case, so we use the party's initials. Um, it's a civil transfer case. Transfer has been granted. Counsel for the appellant, SD, will argue first. A counsel table representing the uh, S SD, we have Alexander Mosley and Matthew McConnell. Welcome, gentlemen. Representing GD at council table, we have William McCarthy. Welcome, Mr. McCarthy, Mallory Palmer, and John Larimore. Welcome. Council, as we have been conducting oral arguments, you'll have approximately two minutes to make your argument before we may start asking questions. Council, are you ready? All right, you may proceed. May it please the court. Uh, Chief Justice Rush, your honors, may it please the court. With this court's permission, I would respectfully request five minutes for rebuttal. Sure. Your honor, the petition for protection that was filed on January 6, 2022, was based upon uh, an allegation of domestic or family violence. The allegation of domestic or family violence was based upon alleged physical harm caused by SD to minor child from an incident that occurred on December 26, 2021. At the final hearing of February 9, 2021, or 2022, there were no exhibits submitted. There were no cooperating witnesses. The only evidence that was presented was the testimony of the parties. The only evidence that was presented in support of the petition was the testimony of GD. When the trial court asked GD to provide the basis for the petition for a protection order, GD provided the following testimony. So on that day, he tried to take HD. He was for supervised visitation and he is not allowed to go. He grabbed her by the arm to take her and picked her up by the arm and he dug his nails into her, which was in the picture, and then I tried to wedge myself in between him and her, and he was still trying to grab her, then grabbed her by the ribs, and he did pick her up, but I, I did choke him to let her go, and I grabbed HD, and then we left. This is the extent of the evidence that was presented. I think there was other testimony with regard to this wasn't a once, just a once occurrence, correct? I mean, I've read the transcript. There was some other testimony in there in addition to that. That there's fighting and a lot of exchanges. Yes, Chief Justice. The, the only testimony that was presented on that was the um, GD had alleged that he cusses her out and says, get the F out of his house. All right. so, if we have a petitioner's sworn testimony, why is it not evidence of probative value? I mean, I've done a lot of protective order hearings, and there was evidence enough to sustain. Why do we discount that in this particular protective order case? I don't believe there was evidence sufficient, Your Honor, because, again, the only evidence was the testimony of GD. But under the civil protection order statute, do you believe that there was more evidence that was needed? Pursuant to 3426.59, the burden is on the petitioner to prove by a preponderance of the evidence an allegation contained in their petition. 
furthermore provides the domestic or family violence sufficient to support the issuance means that the respondent represents a credible threat here is our opinion that there is no evidence sufficient to support a finding of domestic or family violence as statutorily defined nor is there sufficient evidence of any credible threat which would comport with the 342659 except the testimony of the complaining witness the petitioner and the circumstances that uh, were testified to in prior experiences with the cussing and the yelling supervised visitation I mean, what are we to do with an opinion that comes out and says that's insufficient? I mean, are, shouldn't we legitimately be concerned that that's going to get people killed? If those were the things that were put into evidence, Your Honor, I, I, I would agree with you. But we don't have those in evidence. What we have in evidence is he grabbed her by the arm and dug his nails in. Was it unreasonable for a trial court judge to make those inferences based on that evidence? In this present matter, it was, Your Honor because of the other evidence offered by GD. Her, her testimony prohibits a reason from the trial, prohibits the trial court from making a reasonable inference that that act constituted harm. And the reason for that is because GD testified that this incident, the December 26, 2021 incident, resulted in GD being criminally charged. GD testified that after the incident occurred, the police arrived. Police checked over the child. There was no testimony or additional evidence as to whether the child had experienced any sort of harm or any indication that the child was. Whose um, job is it to balance all that out? He said this, she said this, the police came in. Wh whose job is it to, to weigh the credibility of all those witnesses? Credibility certainly goes to the trial court, Your Honor. Or the volume of the evidence, too. Because you wouldn't, you, you have to agree, it's not a case where there's no evidence to support. There was testimony from the mother, wife, that X, Y, and Z happened. And you had the father say something else happened. You had the judge make a finding and find that the mother's testimony was more credible. I'm afraid that you're asking us to change our standard of review right now because there was evidence. It's certainly not asking you to change the standard of review. Are you saying that incredible dubiosity rules to apply here, that we just have to discount at the appellate level mom's testimony? No, no, Chief Justice. What we're saying here is that in this court in South Lake, uh, South Lake, Indiana, the Lake County Assessor, that's 174 NE 3D 177. This court noted that the burden of proof includes the burden of persuasion and the burden of production. The burden of production is the party's duty to present enough evidence so that a, a, a fact finder could rule on the issue before them. This is not about conflicting evidence. It's about the duty to at least put in evidence to support a reasonable belief to believe SD is a credible threat. For example, there is no testimony as to um, fear, um, prior allegations, threats, attempts of harm. We're looking at this one event of December 26, 2021, and based on GD's testimony, all that occurred was that he dug his nails in and picked her up by the ribs. 
Counsel, I want to read one line from Judge Altice's dissent. He also says, as child screamed and cried, father smacked child in the mouth. Uh, is that statement uh, by Judge Altice supported by the record? It's not supported by the evidence, Your Honor. It is in the pleading that was initially filed, but those allegations were never raised at the hearing. Um, they were never put into evidence. And so we do not believe those are part of the record to consider whether there was sufficient evidence to support a finding of either domestic or family violence or that he was a credible threat to the safety of petitioner or petitioner's household. Counsel, I just want to make sure I'm understanding yeah. your argument. This court, a, a few years back, in, in a case called SH versus DW, yes. in a split 3-2 uh, decision, uh, vacated a, a, a protective order. And, and that case seemed to turn on this sort of temporal element that, that the order was sought to be extended two years later and nothing had happened in the interim. And Judge Brown, writing for the uh, Court of Appeals below, uh, noted that there was, quote, insufficient evidence of any present intent. So she, so she seemed to focus in on that temporal element of, of SH. But if I'm hearing you right, you're, you're, you're arguing that had this hearing been the very next day after the incident, that the evidence is still insufficient. So your argument is really not based on, on the Court of Appeals reasoning, is it? It is to an extent. I, I believe that we are also saying that it doesn't meet the statutory definition of domestic or family violence. But essentially, the Court of Appeals ruled that based on GD's testimony, there's insufficient evidence to find the SD represents a credible threat. And we agree with that position. So, so to that respect, we agree with the Court of Appeals reasoning. But in your view, had this hearing been the very next day, the present intent um, is, is not really the right inquiry. In your view, there's just not sufficient evidence to support the, the protective order? There's no I, temporal I, aspect to this at all? No, Your Honor. I believe that the present intent is very important. And I, I, if this hearing was held the day after, yes, there was still not enough evidence. And the reason being is that the statutory definition of domestic or family violence is that attempting to cause harm, threatening to cause harm, or causing physical harm. There is no intent element that's required with it. For example, you could um, accidentally hurt your child, and technically that falls under the definition of domestic or family violence. And I believe that that is why the legislature put in 342659 that a finding of domestic violence or family violence sufficient to support the issuance of a protective order means credible threat. And when this court interpreted credible threat, it is to mean that you have to look at the circumstances in the situation to determine whether, was there any intent to harm? Is this a situation where it could have been accidental? To do that, we have to discount mother's version of the events. Mother testified that uh, father picked the child up in the arm. We talked about that. Mother characterized the incident as another one of father's angry outbursts and relayed that father cusses her out almost every single time. This is a quote in front of my daughter. She also wrote that the father smacked the child in the mouth during the altercation and the child was screaming and crying for the mother. We've got to discount that to get you to get to where you want us to go. Part of that, Your Honor. Okay. And how do we do that under our standard of review? It's we have this evidence, the trial court had this evidence, this evidence, it had to weigh credibility, 
and the court made a decision that that testimony i just talked about was more credible that the mother had owned up to her attacking the dad and he made a he made a finding in a in a case that maybe was close but we don't change close cases certainly and the issue here is that if that was the evidence presented your honor it is a different story that was not the evidence i'm getting it right from the transcript is there a site your honor respectfully just to the the smacking or the um violently picking up she characterized the incident as as another one of father's angry outbursts and relayed the father cusses her out at um time and then talked about the father grabbing the child by the ribs and i believe that some of that is in her petition but smacking um violent none of that was mentioned at the hearing when evidence was presented and so when i when you look at that when it's just a grabbing the arm and you take what um gd had said the event happened is that they were at father's home to exercise supervised visit visitation so this is not a situation where he's showing up somewhere unannounced trying to grab the kid and leave this is a situation he's getting ready to exercise supervised visitation the parties disagree as to the parameters of his supervised visitation he wants to leave he grabs the child to leave to exercise parenting time there is no grabbing with any sort of intent or reasonable inference that father was trying to hurt the child and then right after the incident based on mother's testimony the police arrived examined the child and there's no indication that there was any harm presented so when you look at her testimony describing the events and the lack of testifying to the smack or a physical harm don't believe this shows a present intent to harm the Meyer child counsel am i right that the protective order is expired your honor um if it has expired that, that i'm unaware at the time it's, it's still active and in place yes your honor from our understanding so in sh first dw this court noted that there was a violent attack on the petitioner and there were certainly fears and this court sympathized with her but there was nothing to show that the respondent had any present intent to harm this um, petitioner and also because, because two years had gone by and nothing else happened in the interim this was six weeks after after the incident sure your honor and, and i believe that the lapse of time is not what's at issue here i don't we're not up here saying that on that specific date even if you committed domestic violence four weeks ago as long as you show up and say you don't have any intent you're good that is not our proposition it's just that based on the facts of the december 26 incident from gd's testimony there can be no reasonable inference that he represents a credible threat again there are no additional allegations of attempts to cause physical harm threats to cause physical harm fear of physical harm 
um, or any additional allegations that he caused physical harm in the past. Mr. Mosley, does your um, case depend on us finding there could be no reasonable inference? Could there be an inference? May I answer your question, Your Honor? There can be inferences, but I believe that it does come down to you need to have a reasonable inference. And a reasonable inference looks at the facts and circumstances of the case. Could a court in certain circumstances find that grabbing by the arm and digging nails in, it reasonably infers that the child was physically harmed? Certainly. But here, based on the testimony presented by GD, that is not a reasonable inference. And it certainly doesn't provide reasonable inference that he has a, that there's a reasonable belief that SD has a present intent to harm the minor child. All right, thank you. Thank you. We'll hear from you again, Mr. Mosley, on rebuttal. Mr. McCarthy. Thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the court. Mr. Mosley recited the facts that mother presented, which the trial court found more credible than father's partial denial of that version of events. The trial court also began the hearing by asking mother if her verified petition was true. She responded that it was. So the petition, which was verified initially anyway, was part of the record of the hearing. This court could affirm based solely on the standard of review, and I would be happy to answer any further questions the court has about how that standard of review applies to this case. But we would ask the court to also address two issues of statutory interpretation that under SH has led to the Court of Appeals misapplication of the law in this case. First, the act does not require any balancing of the party's interests as part of the statutory process for granting an order for protection. A protection order should be granted when a petitioner proves her claim under the process set out in the act. Second, the statute requires a petitioner to prove the respondent represents a credible threat to her safety or the safety of a household member. It does not require any proof of the respondent's actual intent. And the court should clarify that the credible threat a respondent poses is an objective determination. If guidance is needed, trial courts should look to the respondent's past actions and the party's present circumstances, but evidence of the respondent's actual intent is not required. I would like to begin by discussing the statutory process for granting an order for protection. The act creates a purely civil statutory process and sets out three steps a trial court must follow before issuing an order for protection. First, the court must find domestic or family violence has occurred. The conduct that constitutes domestic or family violence is defined by the legislature in a statute. In this case, it's relevant to note that domestic or family violence includes causing physical harm to a family or household member and placing a family or household member in fear of physical harm. This is not the only burden a petitioner has, but it is a threshold question which mother passed easily with her testimony. Second, the court must find the petitioner has proven the respondent represents a credible threat to her safety or the safety of a family or household member. The respondent testified he thought what he did in this situation was okay and blamed mother for the violence. Mother testified this was not the first incident of violence and that the parties had, that father had other angry outbursts. The trial court, in addition to the actual claims of violence, had more than enough context to conclude that something like this could happen again. So it's finding that father represents a credible threat was well-founded. Finally, if the petitioner meets their burden, 
the trial court takes the third step of granting relief necessary to bring about a cessation of the violence or threat of violence. It did so here by prohibiting father from going to mother's home, contacting her, or committing further acts of violence. If a trial court applies this process, as it did here, it has complied with the act and should be, uh, and the court should affirm when those findings are supported by the standard of review. In your petition to transfer, you argued that the father did not contest that he screamed and cursed at mother, but there is also, but how could he have contested mother's testimony that when father could not hear 90% of mom's testimony due to technical difficulties on the remote hearing, and the trial court didn't relay that piece of information back about mother's testimony? The trial court, I think, did the best it could in the situation, which was that parties were hearing cases remotely during the pandemic. And it really, the trial your position court, is it really wouldn't matter because the fact he didn't contest that, that there's enough on the that to, for us under a standard of review. I mean, wouldn't that be a, because it, it sounds, I mean, there were technical issues during this. I don't think it matters at this stage whether it was contested or not. The trial court found mother more credible, and so the standard of review would require us to, um, would prohibit reversing simply because there is some evidence supporting its conclusions. I think that if father had timely objected or requested a continuance because of his technical difficulties, we would be looking at a very different case, but that's not what occurred He didn't here. raise any due process concerns. And, and, the, and that wasn't even briefed. So I, I don't think that issue is, is live here, and, and it would have had to been timely objected to. The trial court in this case followed that statutory process, and nothing else should be required. I would like to discuss the, the, the brief issue of the balancing of the party's interests. The act creates a statutory cause of action, and if the three-step process is laid out in Section 9 of the act is all that's required to support an order for protection. The statute does not require trial courts to balance the respondent's liberty interests against the petitioner's need for safety as part of its application of that test. The Coalition Against Domestic Violence and the other amici pointed out in briefing that this interpretation would force trial courts to engage in an unwieldy and even repugnant assessment of the balance of the seriousness of the petitioner's injuries or harms against the respondent's prospective. How should a court take into account, let's say on an original protective order, if it's three years later and one party comes and there's been no contact for three years, would that go into the burden of proof or how should, where would that come in? The trial court should be looking at the, the respondent's past actions and also the present circumstances. As this court noted in SH, there are some situations where indefinite uh, application of a protective order would be appropriate because of an indefinite threat of harm, such as from a threat that no matter how long it takes for me to find you, I will kill you when I. I think my question goes but, for when should in an original protective order? When should a, where where in the statute when a court's weighing this out should they look at a temporal um, requirement? If it's if it's three years, something happened three years ago, then somebody asked for protective order. There's been no contact at all in between. Does that factor into the burden of proof or? Or, or under your argument can never be considered? No, I, I don't think it should never be considered. I think it should be part of the analysis of whether the respondent's actions with the passage of time indicate that there is still a credible threat. So would that be the court, third step, the, the third part of the statute you mentioned where the question is whether or not the protective order is necessary? No, that, that would be an analysis of what relief is necessary in crafting the order. And I don't think that's really part of this case here because the respondent's arguments are all whether or not an order should have been granted. 
But we're asking that. We want, we, we want to hear your analysis on this. The so when should ever the, because you're saying with, with the Court of Appeals saying, reading SH to say that, the, you know, that the time is an element, and you're asking us, and we had um, some very helpful amicus briefs here, when is it, how, where do you factor in the analysis if it's 10 years before? I think that is squarely in the credible threat analysis, and I think SH had that correctly, that it's not a total bar because the act specifically does not have any sort of statute of limitations, but it's relevant to consider whether the violence, when it was perhaps very serious at the time, if it has not recurred, may no longer be a strong indicator of a credible threat. And not just looking at the time, SH also considered the party's present circumstances when the, the petitioner requested a new protective order and noted not only had two years passed, but the parties lived 200 miles apart, they didn't regularly go to each other's communities, they had no children in common, and there was no attempt indicated uh, that, that the respondent was attempting to keep tabs on or have contact with the petitioner. So there was no evidence supporting the issuance of that order. So time, just as a as a rule, is not decisive, but the respondent's actions might have less impact over time on the trial court's consideration, and other circumstances, such as a lapse of any conduct by the respondent that we would be looking at as, as indicating a threat, are both appropriate considerations. So there's no bar on the time, on, on whether an incident is relevant, but its weight might be relevant. And that's why it's so important to look to the standard of review in these cases and look at the trial court as the appropriate finder of fact, not the court of appeals. Do you need to wade into much of that at all, given the flexibility that's already built into the statute? Uh, does the court need to weigh into the time element or just the credible threat determination? This court didn't speak on the Civil Protection Order Act until that case, uh, so lots of time went by. These cases represent a significant portion of the state's civil docket, and my concern is that every time we speak on something, uh, and I don't mean that negatively, but I mean even if it's a nugget, a golden <laughs> nugget, uh, it makes it less plain than the, the, the naked language. And, and I, I understand the, the statute to be quite flexible uh, in, in terms of what a judge is, is permitted to consider. You know, you speak um, third prong, lots and lots of relief that can be granted that I agree with you is completely irrelevant here because these parties were the subject or parties in a separate suit that, that's more expansive than this. Why do we need to say much of anything at all? That's, that's my question. I don't think the court needs to say anything beyond the fact that the statute should be applied as written, and specifically disclaiming some dicta in SH that the Court of Appeals took and ran with in this situation. They, did, they appear to have determined that some explicit balancing of the party's interest is needed, where SH was clearly talking about the fact that without applying the credible threat element, there's no balance of the petitioner's interest in, in the respondent's liberty interest. And instead, you're simply looking at whether the petitioner ticks a box. And that's not what the act says to do. The act says to say whether it's domestic or family violence, whether it is sufficient means that you have to prove the credible threat, and then the court gets to grant an order including the appropriate relief. And I, the second issue that we've highlighted is that the trial court, or the court of appeals appeared to want something more than an objective assessment of the credible threat and, and essentially held that the respondent 
the respondent's actual intent of causing further harm need to be proved. Again, I think that is dicta in SH. It's not consistent with the other parts of SH that, that recite the statute. And it doesn't really affect the outcome of SH. So while that decision was correctly decided, I think other courts may have taken and run with some other language in the decision that are more applicable to the, to the decision's facts. And that this court could really clarify like you're saying, it, it could really make things easier for trial courts to say, you should apply the statute explicitly, but as written and without a lot of elaboration. If, if any balancing occurs under the act, it's structural by placing the burden on the petitioner to prove both of the, the first two steps in the case. And if there's proof needed of the credible threat, it's objective evidence of the respondent's of the respondent's past actions and other background information about the party's circumstances. Nowhere in the act does it say that you should be balancing the party's interests and nowhere in the act does it say that you should be looking at the respondent's intent. And, and on both of those issues, the trial court appears to have taken fairly harmless statements in SH and made those the law, conflicting with the act. I, I would like to address the credible threat uh, element in a little more detail because I think that, statu that statutory language is helpful to trial courts and that not a lot of elaboration is needed. It, it appears from the Court of Appeals decision that was that's now vacated that they think that the respondent's credible, the credible threat posed by a respondent includes some analysis of his present intent. That's not only not part of the act, it's directly in conflict with it. And I think we can look to the amicus brief filed by the Protective Order Project for some examples of how that would be harmful. Perhaps a respondent is delusional and doesn't understand that his actions are placing his family or, or a victim of stalking or harassment in harm. Perhaps a respondent is caught in the cycle of domestic violence and we're at the stage where he is credibly or not credibly claiming that this is the last time something like this will happen. He promises not to do it again, but we don't know down the road what might happen, and his actions indicate that it will likely occur again. The Protective Order Project pointed out that in both of these circumstances, a trial court might be left looking for something more when clearly these are people the act was intended to protect. Justice Goff, I would like to highlight something that you said in SH and that you mentioned earlier today. The risks of recidivism are high in these situations, and as you mentioned earlier, they're often fatal, if not at first, from the second, third, or hundredth time that someone experiences domestic violence. This act is Indiana's collective response to that phenomenon to try to break the cycle of violence before it turns fatal. And by elevating the standard on petitioners, this court risks undermining the purpose of that act. So we would ask that the, trial, that the trial court's order be affirmed for the following reasons. Father committed domestic violence against mother and the party's child under the terms of the act. The trial court heard each party's testimony and concluded mother was more credible. Father's consistent hostility to mother, his violence against mother and the child, and the party's circumstances as co-parents of a young child show father is a credible threat to mother's safety. The trial court weighed the evidence, made the findings required by the act, and issued an order that granted only the necessary relief. Under the standard of review, this court should therefore affirm. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. 
Mr. Mosley, rebuttal. Thank you, Chief Justice. I think a big issue in this case comes down to whether or not GD's petition is evidence to support the allegations. It is not evidence. While the trial court asked GD, is the statements made in here um, true and accurate, or do you affirm under the penalty of perjury, that's where the trial court ended the conversation. The trial court did not ask GD if she wanted to admit it, did not ask if she wanted to incorporate it, did not ask the opposing side whether he had any objection to it. And then right after that, he goes on to tell GD that please provide a basis for the petition for protection. And that is the evidence that I read earlier that was provided by GD. What, now, what if the, what if the judge had gone line by line through the petition and asked for each line, is, is this true, is this true, is this true? Would the answers to those questions be uh, admissible and, and before the court in, in evaluating whether there's sufficient evidence? Yes, Your Honor, especially because it puts the respondent on notice of what is the evidence being brought against him and gives him the opportunity to respond to it. Here, as you pointed to earlier, Chief Justice, is that 90% of it uh, he did not hear. And when he brought that up to the trial court, the trial court summarized the testimony that was presented by GD. The trial court at no point said, plus the allegations that were in her petition, or here's the evidence that was presented in furtherance of those but allegations. There, no, there was no due process violation that was brought on behalf of the father, correct? Given the, the manner and the issues that they had, technical issues they had in the remote hearing? No, no, Chief Justice, there is not a due process violation. My point is only to show that this was not incorporated. Um, the trial court gave no indication that it was incorporated. And I think that the case of a, a recent Supreme Court, I'm sorry, Court of Appeals case, it's in the matter of DP 72NE3D976, is persuasive here. In that case, they discussed the bounds of judicial notice under 201. The Court of Appeals correctly noted the trial courts, they are allowed to take judicial notice of the pleadings made by the parties. In, that, in the matter of DP, the state had made an allegation that father um, abused drugs. There was no evidence presented at the trial of drug use. However, the trial court relied on that as evidence to support the um, Chin's determination. Did you make the argument on the union petitioner transfer that the, the court erred in taking judicial notice of the petition? No, Chief Justice. And I believe that the Court of Appeals never thought that that was part of the evidence either, and that's why there's no mention of the smacking or the violent acts or anything like that. In, in, in matter of DP, the, the Court of Appeals went on to note that to take judicial notice of a fact that's in substantial dispute would be inappropriate. Um, for the state to rely on an allegation made in a preliminary filing without evidence presented at the hearing would go beyond the scope of judicial notice. Is, it the, is, that, is that the way to frame it, though, or are you taking judicial notice of an allegation? 
that the other side received in advance of the hearing? Well, I believe in the same respect that the father in the matter of DP also received notice of the Chin's petition against him or the allegations. However, there's still a duty to present evidence to support those allegations. And here, the, the burden's not big. It's not a large burden. It's preponderance. But you still have to support those allegations. And it, if just making allegations is enough, I think that that inappropriately transfers the burden to the respondent to come to a hearing and say, this is why everything she said in her petition is not true. The legislature did not put that requirement in the statute. The, the statute is clear that the burden is on the petitioner to prove by a preponderance of the evidence. Here, the only evidence in the record is the testimony I read to you. I believe that Indiana rule, um, appellate rule 46, also provides support for our position and that see my time's concluded. Great, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Council. Council, we appreciate your arguments today. Um, bring this case to us. We will be issuing a decision in due, due course. That concludes the hearing. Thank you. All right.